And for all this, nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness, deep down things. Gerard Manley Hopkins from God's Grandeur. Welcome to the Deep Down Things podcast, a partnership of Logos Journal and Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. Join us for a deep dive into Catholic thought, culture, and everything in between as we explore the depths of God's grandeur. All right, welcome to another episode of Deep Down Things, a podcast production of the University of St. Thomas Catholic Studies and the Friends of Catholic Studies at St. Thomas. I'm Dave Devil. I'm a professor of Catholic Studies here at the University of St. Thomas and also the editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. I'm here, as always, with my co-host Liz Kelly, award-winning author, speaker, spiritual director, and former, sadly to say, managing editor of Logos, a journal of Catholic thought and culture. Liz, how are you doing? I'm great, thank you. We have with us one of our colleagues, uh, Dr. Heidi Giebel from the philosophy department uh, at St. Thomas, and she is a very good friend of ours. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, my wife, Dr. Catherine Devil, teaches with her, and so uh, given that Heidi has many children, I think at least 27 or 30 of them, <laughs> and we have about seven children, many people get us confused, say, Dr. Giebel, the one with all the kids. Well, that could be, or it could be Dr. Devil, but in any case, we have the, the one with 12 kids, I believe is the accurate number. How are you, Heidi? I'm doing great, Dave. Thanks for having me. Um, yes, 12 is correct. And I like how you have about seven. Yeah. Have you counted them recently? We're, we're always finding them under the couch cushions. So, you know, just another mouth to feed and that sort of thing. But, uh, so, Heidi, tell us a little bit about your background. You're a philosopher. Um, what, what, what have you been doing during your career in terms of thinking about, thinking about the ways of wisdom? Uh, yeah, so philosophy does mean love of wisdom. And uh, I, I sort of fell into it as an undergrad. I thought maybe I would major in business and then I didn't want to take that pesky accounting course. And then I thought maybe I would major in psychology and then I didn't want to take the research methods course. Uh, and then I wanted to major in everything and that wasn't really financially possible. But <laughs> philosophy I thought was the closest thing because it's kind of about everything. You can kind of take that big step back and, and think about everything. Uh, so you go um, I went to St. Norbert College for undergrad. Okay. Uh, and then I went to Notre Dame for grad. It was actually the only school I applied to. I said, if, if Notre Dame won't take me, I'll be a stay-at-home mom. Uh, but Notre Dame took me, and uh, my, my poor engineer husband packed up and, <laughs> and moved to South Bend, Indiana, where there really aren't a lot of, of good jobs in his field. Um, and yeah, what'd very nicely your, watched me. What did you do your dissertation on? Remind me. Uh, it was like, on what's your the area? principle of double effect. Uh, it's mm -hmm. an ethical principle uh, okay. for determining when it's okay to do something that's going to have a, a really significant benefit and also cause a significant harm. Mm. Uh, so yeah, kind of kind of more technical stuff than what, I do now. What a wonderful uh, <laughs> what, what a wonderful philosophy student you must have been. That's just <laughs> like such a cornerstone kind of question. Wonderful. But you did connect then with psychology because uh, your your new book, which we're we're talking about by way of an article you did for us that was a cutout in Logos, uh, your book is titled Ethical Excellence, and it's not just a sort of a dry treatment of what makes something ethical, but it really involves a lot of questions about what kind of people do seek ethical excellence. Can you say a little bit about the book project? 
Sure. Uh, so, yeah, you're right. I, I never stopped loving psychology, even though I stopped majoring in it. And now I really wish I had taken that research methods class. I think it would have come in handy uh, for, for some of my book project. Maybe I'll, I'll get a chance to take it here at, at St. Thomas or at least sit in. Uh, but so uh, I had always sort of wanted to write uh, an ethics book that wouldn't be really dry and boring and turn regular people, including my students, off, but would, would help you know, present the life of virtue as the good life, which I really think it is. I, I, my students probably lose count of how many times I say, the ethical life really is the good life. You don't have to choose one or the other. Uh -huh. um, and so I, I became interested in the psychology research um, into uh, at least concepts related to virtue, right? Like people who are more grateful tend to be happier people and more fun to be around and have more friends. And you know, similarly with humble people, and of course everybody loves a generous person. Uh, people want honest friends. Uh, you know, people want to be around just people. They want just coworkers. Um, and, and so virtuous people, ethical people in general, tend to, to live better lives, tend to be happier with their lives. Uh, so I wanted to make some of those psychology connections um, in my mostly philosophical ethics book that I, I started working on I don't know, maybe eight years ago, a shamefully long time ago. Uh, it really took me a long time to finish this project. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, what, what really kicked it into gear was I got a, a modest external grant um, from, it's called the Beacon Project. It, it was a, a grant of the Templeton Foundation. Uh, so I got a, a modest grant to interview apparently virtuous people, people who have won <laughs> national or international awards for doing great work in service of others. Uh, so I got to you know, pay people a little bit of money to tell me their life stories. I, I used a life story interview that wasn't explicitly uh, about ethical virtue just to see what would come up. And sure enough, you a lot of good stuff on Aristotle came up. I did not. <laughs> I did not. I think that's one of the great strengths of the book is the stories that, um, uh, the way that you draw out the stories which are embodying the different virtues that you're talking about, generosity or wisdom or whatever, um, you just get hooked by these stories and, and it becomes actually a really delightful read because of the, the storytelling aspect of it. I think that's one of its great strengths. Yeah, you told a few of these stories in the article that you did for us, which was a kind of a cutout. Um, and it was, you know, your article was really targeting this question of, uh, well, I mean, is there something, is, is there something that's, uh, you know, that's religious about this as well? Um, because a lot of people think of ethical excellence and they think of somebody who's upright and they think about it in sort of abstract terms or if they think of it in concrete terms, it's absent a kind of spirituality. But you made a lot of connections to that in your article for us. I did, and I, I was uh, really happy that you talked me into writing something for you where I could do that uh, with my, my book being uh, you know, intended for a uh, more general, broader audience and um, being a, a philosophy rather than a theology book. Uh, I only barely touched on, on some of those things uh, in my book. So I, I was really glad to have an opportunity to bring out some of those themes. Uh, you know, when I looked for uh, exemplars to, to interview, uh, so that's what philosophers tend to call them, the exemplars, these, these awesome uh, ethical people. Uh, so when I w was looking for my exemplars, there was no screening process for faith or anything. That, like, there uh, was no intentional upfront effort to find people of faith. So I was pleasantly surprised by how many times that just came up in the interviews. 
there is a, a question at the very end of the interview that invites people to say, well, where are you at with spirituality? Have you ever had a spiritual experience? What are your religious beliefs? Uh, but the vast majority of time, uh, these things would come up well before we got to that question. Um, so many of these people really are motivated by their faith to do what they do. That was very clear, especially in um, uh, the woman who was feeding people. Remind me her name. Was it Gloria? Gloria Lewis. Gloria yeah. Lewis. And some of the examples that she gave were, you know, she was directly referencing scripture. <laughs> Jesus yeah. says, feed the hungry. I'm feeding the hungry. And uh, she just had a wonderful way of sort of, ex of, of tying that together in a way that was very organic to her. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I think it's going to be, it's really helpful to read that story too because it does remind you of the practical realities toward which virtue is destined. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's not an abstraction that I live in my head as a generous person. Um, uh, so I, th I was really attracted to her story in, in particular and, and appreciated the way that you uh, sort of let her tell it too. Okay. That was good. She Thank a, she yeah, she's one of my favorite people in the yeah. world, yeah. and um, uh, you know, she's the only one, even of, of my exemplars who are awesome people, uh, she's the only one who can amaze a room full of college seniors in a summer evening course. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, when they're sitting there for four hours, and it's beautiful outside, and this is the last darn class they need to graduate, uh, you know, they're, they're not easily amazed, but yeah, you see some jaws drop when you hear what Gloria Lewis is up to. Well, and her whole family. I, I thought her, her story was also an exemplar because of the way it trickled out to everyone around her. She didn't live in an isolated silo, but uh, the practice of her virtue uh, spread like <laughs> these happy tentacles throughout her family and her son. And she yeah. tells that remarkable story of meeting the homeless man who's wearing a t-shirt that she just happens to know came from her son. And the homeless man's like, no way, this t-shirt <laughs> came from your son. She's like, yeah. You know, yeah. that was just a great, yeah. great detail. It's, uh, it's beautiful. And um, I just, I love her conversion story as, mm -hmm. as well. She wasn't uh, always such a, a uh, deeply faithful person, mm -hmm. uh, but it was actually when her older son, who still lives in Barbados, where she's from, when he was in jail, uh, and you, know, you think jails are not nice here, jails are really not nice in Barbados, mm. uh, and she was just at her wit's end, there was nothing she could do, you know, she didn't have money for bail, uh, the system was sort of corrupt, she had no hope of mm. being a, an influence for justice, uh, and one of her friends said, you know what I do? I watch Christian TV. Uh, and so she started watching Christian TV and she just, like she literally had this come to Jesus moment. Uh, and thankfully her husband was on board and, and had a, a similar um, conversion or at least deepening type of conversion experience. Um, mm. And so that's when they, they really took off. And like you say, they, they didn't just sort of keep all that in their head. Oh yeah, I, I believe in Jesus. What a nice idea. This is very comforting. Mm -hmm. uh, but like they actually read the Bible and they actually put their faith into practice. And it, yeah, it was really beautiful. Oh yeah, they really took it to heart. They were just completely converted in, in, yeah. <laughs> in every aspect of their, of their life. It's a great I, challenge. I mean, she, uh, she talks you know, in your work about, you know, that that's the motivation for mm -hmm. all of this is this Christian. But, you know, we, have, we, have, we live in a culture in which many people say, well, look, you know, you don't need that stuff. That's, mm -hmm. you know, that maybe that's okay for her. But you know what? 
we can be good without God. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how, how do you think that conversation plays? You know, how would Gloria respond, or how how would how would a philosopher parse that out? Um, right. Yeah, it's it's easier for me to to answer for myself as a philosopher than for Gloria. I think Gloria would probably be fairly skeptical of that. Uh, she would at least probably say it like it ultimately comes from God. So I mean, she's the first to say that she always had these inclinations toward radical generosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, she got in a lot of trouble as a teenager for staying too long at her friends' houses, helping them do their chores instead <laughs> of you know coming home by curfew. Uh, so she's always had that sort of inclination, uh, but I think she's still going to attribute that to, to God working in her, uh, even from the beginning. So maybe that's a start of, of what she would say. And I guess what I would say as, as both a philosopher and a person of faith isn't that far off from that, right? Um, yeah, I, I think God's ultimately responsible for everything. Uh, and I, I think it uh, can be attributed fairly to, to God working in people as, uh, as they're growing in virtue, um, you know, both through how he's created our, our natures to want to tend toward the good, mm-hmm. but also you know, once in a while through sort of direct inspiration. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder about that, how much we've lost uh, the uh, belief that we are created for good. Uh, it just seems to have been um, corrupt and poisoned so much, especially over recent years with world wars and, and so much. How do we retain that? Or how do you reignite that uh, belief that we are created for good? Oh, that's a wonderful question. I'm not sure I have a great answer to it. Uh, I think um, you know, in my own environment, it's, it's easier to, to reignite that um, you know, hanging out with small children. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that they're born perfect saints, but uh, you know, a toddler genuinely wants to be good and loving and helpful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so when we see everything that's gone wrong, uh, like if I, I think to how my, my children are or, or have been as, as young toddlers, it's very easy to, to think, uh, well, you know, we had something there by nature <laughs> right. that, that sadly we're losing and, and we need to dig it back up. We need to, to bring it back. Uh, you know, I've got some Confucianism in my book that I like to, to mix with my Western philosophy. Yeah. Um, I like it among other things because I, I think it's a, uh, a nice deterrent to relativism. You know, if people at radically different cultures and languages and environments could, could come up with complementary theories, it, it maybe lends some credence to it. Uh, but the, the great Confucian philosopher Mencius uh, talks about us all being born with the sprouts of virtue uh, within us. You know, not, not full-blown virtuous qualities, uh, but, but the sprouts. And if you just put sprouts in the right environment and you know, give them some sunshine and water, uh, they'll grow. And so it's, it's natural to us, I think, in a sense to grow in virtue, but far from automatic. And if you've ever had a garden, you know not all of your sprouts are going to flourish, right? Sure. Yeah. You, uh, I mean, you, you, you wrote about these exemplars, though, because I take it that part of, you know, part of the answer to Liz's question is, well, people have to see it, and uh-huh. they have to see, see how it works and see how it's beautiful. And, and that's, that's really what you've done, is you've, you've You've depicted beautiful lives and kind of broken them down and quote, you know, quoted from the people who, who inhabit them. But uh, you've depicted beautiful lives so that other people will see. 
Um, is, is, you know, is that really the answer, is that people just need to see, you know, see saints and see beauty? I think that's a good chunk of the answer, yeah. So I, I think philosophy is a lovely thing for, for providing analysis and sort of initial direction. Uh, I think psychology is a lovely thing for sort of the, the nuts and bolts of how we might uh, guide or incentivize people. Uh, but I, I think ultimately what's going to inspire people is examples of goodness and beauty. Benedict has this wonderful reflection on the Good Samaritan parable. And uh, he basically boils down to this is faith made visible. This is love made visible. Mm. You know, you could say this is virtue made visible. And I think your book does that in a really beautiful way. It makes it visible, mm. tangible. Yeah, well, and it's, it, you know, and it, it, you know, because God knows the way we are. I mean, God holds out, you know, seek ye first the kingdom of God, and then all these things will be added. I mean, part of your work is to show that uh, these people who are very, very good are also, in, you know, they're living their best lives, if you will, or they're, you know, they're enjoying things. They have hobbies. Maybe you could talk about some of the people who, you know, who had hobbies, and they, you know, they're not just sort of uh, robotic do-gooders. Uh, they're, they're living people who enjoy you know, turnips and, you know, brownies and, and playing polo or whatever. The wheelchair guy. That's a great right. story. Oh, sure. Yeah, you know, he tried all of these him. kind of do-gooder things. He tried yeah. to go and be like a mentor. And then one day woke up and he's like, I'm an introvert. I don't like this kind of stuff. I'm not good at it. I'm a bioengineer, you know. Right. And then comes up with the email or the wheelchair idea. Right. Right. And he says it was almost like God just smacking him with a two by four. It's like, oh, what the heck are you doing? You're terrible yeah. at this stuff. Yeah. I, yeah, like, yeah. You know, I gave you gifts. I gave you skills. Why don't you use those? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. He is a really fun guy. I had the chance to talk to him. Uh, again recently, so he's sort of semi-retired from the, the presidency of his organization, and he hangs out at this cabin in the deep in the woods in Maine and like chops his own firewood, and uh, yeah, he's just fun. As the founding program of the Catholic Studies Movement in Higher Education, St. Thomas Catholic Studies is internationally recognized for its integrated, Christ-centered approach to exploring 2,000 years of Catholic thought and culture. We provide a range of undergraduate and graduate programs, as well as professional development opportunities, all to help you integrate faith into your academic and professional pursuits. Catholic intellectual exploration or career preparation? Choose both. Visit stthomas.edu. That's stthomas.edu backslash Catholic Studies to learn about our online, on-ground, and hybrid educational options so you can learn and grow wherever you need to be. Another one who comes to mind, uh, who I don't think landed in the uh, paper I wrote for Logos, is a, a lady named Lisa Nigro, who was a Chicago cop. I just sort of took the entrance exam for the police academy on a whim. She had been a bartender, and one of her customers dared her to, to take the entrance exam, uh, which she did, and she passed, just, just took it cold um, wow. and, and passed that. Uh, so became a, a cop in Chicago, and after a few years um, the, you know, uh, doing drug busts and so forth in really rough neighborhoods, mm. uh, she thought, you know, maybe I don't want to do this forever. Uh, but she had developed relationships with homeless people on her beat and like had formed friendships and, and um, really came to respect a lot of them. And she thought, you know, maybe I can do something with them. So she takes a leave of absence 
Uh, she hears of some cafe in Atlanta that serves the, the homeless with dignity and respect. And uh, her husband says, okay, well, let's just go down and check it out. Uh, her husband was also a cop. And so these, these two cops go down to, to check out the cafe serving the homeless in Atlanta. And she says, yes, that's what I want to do. Uh, so she, she comes back and, and says she wants to start this. Uh, can't get the funding, can't get the space for it. So she takes her nephew's little uh, red radio flyer wagon and loads it up with sandwiches and coffee and just like hits the streets. Uh, eventually gets enough publicity uh, to start this cafe. Uh, and so she does that for a number of years. Uh, but the, the really interesting thing about her is what she's doing now is not that at all. Uh, at age, oh, I think 23 or 24, uh, her son uh, had West Nile virus. Mm -hmm. They didn't know it, but he suffered uh, a cardiac arrest from that. Uh, had a, an anoxic brain injury, so lost oxygen to his brain for a period of time, and is now significantly disabled. And so she's become his full-time caregiver slash disability advocate. Uh, and so she's developed a whole new set of hobbies. So when you mentioned hobbies, I thought of her right away. Uh, she grows organic herbs in her tiny little Chicago yard. Uh, and like sells them to gourmet restaurants. Uh, she does art therapy with Nick and some other people and displays his paintings. Um, and then yeah, just a lot of, of advocacy and, and that kind of stuff. Um, so it's, it's just neat to see the other, you know, the human side of, of these people. They're not robot saints. Well, and that really speaks, I think, again to there's some innate thread in that that's driving her in all of these endeavors. It's, it's not that it was just uh, sort of coincidence. It's sort of like whatever life has handed her, she has responded with a particular kind of um, virtue of like, all right, this is what we have. I've got these lemons. I'm making lemonade. Okay, now you gave me sausage. I'm going to make hamburgers, you know, or whatever. Right. She right. just has a flexibility. And I think that, uh, like in Catholic studies, we often talk about how we're not preparing students for a job. We're preparing them for any job. Mm -hmm. And I think the a similar principle is applied to a life of virtue. It, it prepares you for any situation, not just one particular little yeah. rut. Absolutely, and some virtues I think do that in very obvious ways, right? Like if you have the virtue of perseverance, you know, you're gonna keep on keeping on in the case of obstacles. Mm -hmm. And some virtues I think in, in less obvious ways, mm -hmm. uh, right? Like um, temperance, you know, not a very sexy virtue, right. um, <laughs> literally. But, um, you know, if, if you've got the, the self-discipline uh, that you need to to stick with things, uh, to avoid uh, just doing stupid things on impulse. And I like yourself a little yeah. bit. Yeah, yeah, and that's going to serve you well in so many contexts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, but you will enjoy it. I mean, that's you know, I, right. I do think that there is a kind of, you know, American slash Protestant slash German Kantian sort mm -hmm. of hangover that, well, you know, if I'm <laughs> If if I'm having fun, it this can't be good. Right, right. And right. and you know that's that's something that I think needs to be you know not that we have to sort of sell it as well. You know, you're always going to be right. you know on top of the world, but mm -hmm. but there will be joy and yes. there will be because of that flexibility. Yeah. 
Right. And, and I think right. that there's also, it's an indicator that you're working in your charisms, you know, and mm. your virtues sort of feed your charisms because when you're operating in your charism, you forget yourself. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a playfulness, there's a joyfulness, there's a refreshment of your spirit, even if yeah. you're spending all of your energy. Um, and I think that overlays with the, the sense of virtue, too, that um, there's something about it where you lose yourself to it in a positive sense. You know, you lose yourself right. in it in a positive sense. Right. But that, uh, that's something that's so hard to grasp from the outside, right? Mm -hmm. uh, like it's hard to imagine that anybody could enjoy exercising the virtue of temperance. If, right. Um, <laughs> right. It, like if your yeah. idea of fun is binge drinking every weekend. <laughs> right. like it, it's really hard to imagine that no, actually, overall, you'll be much happier, much more joyful with a more moderate approach to alcohol, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, and it's, I think that's something that the stories hopefully help illustrate um, in, in case, um, like many of us in many ways, uh, a reader is, you know, sitting on the outside of some of these virtues. It maybe gives a little bit more traction to see uh, that this is is really a joyful life. I think one of the pieces too, at least like when I was working on this book on women and virtue, mm -hmm. and um, and holiness is one of the sort of the turning points is recognizing that uh, at least to some degree, virtue is a grace that we ask to receive. That is, it's not me just clenching my fists and I'm going to do it and I'm going to persevere, but rather receiving a grace from God in order to persevere. And that it makes it less isolated and less dependent on me, but it's really much more dependent on what God can do through me. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah, that that makes it much less daunting, right? Mm -hmm. Much more accessible, uh, at, at least for, for people with some faith. Mm -hmm. The people you interviewed were probably not the sort of the clenched fist, uh, you know. I mean, probably no. some of them are more type A, but, but they're, at the same Indeed. time, they have to be somewhat receptive, right? Right, right, very much so. Uh, so another one of my favorite guys is a, uh, an army captain, mm. uh, Captain James McCormick. So very much a, a type A type of guy. Uh, but when, uh, when he started living his best life, as, as they say, uh, was when he finally had uh, a moment of, maybe surrender is too strong a word, but mm. recognition and humility that you know, his, his life wasn't going that well. Mm. And maybe that had something to do with the choices he was making. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, so. Uh, and he, he did have sort of a, a come-to-Jesus moment, thanks to a near-death experience on a battlefield. Mm. Uh, and, and he vowed that he was, he was going to survive uh, this battle for the sake of his kids, and he was going to come home, and he was going to reconnect with them. And uh, he really did. Mm. Uh, he really did. He had, uh, was divorced twice. He had uh, two kids with each of his, his ex-wives. Uh, and he came home and he said to both of his ex-wives, why don't you send the kids to stay with me for the summer? And they did. And the kids stayed forever. Mm. Uh, mm. Yeah. And, Interesting. Yeah. And, and so he went on to um, start just a really beautiful nonprofit for wounded veterans, oh, uh, uh, yeah. veterans to agriculture type program, mm -hmm. uh, giving them you know, gainful employment, something useful to do, as well as uh, you know, agriculture, of course, can be really therapeutic. 
I think that's one of the strengths of the things that comes across in, in both the book and in the article is that uh, it's kind of never too late. <clears throat> no matter where you are, you can make a decision to turn the other direction and go the other way. Uh, there are just a lot of examples of, 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 of that kind of um, conversion, if you want to call it that, or changing your life around. It's very, very hopeful in that sense. Okay. And uh, some of that truth be told may be a function of where I looked for my interviewees. Mm. So I was looking at different national level awards. And one of them is the Purpose Prize, uh, mm. which was developed specifically for people uh, who started their, their new awesome gig when they were at least 55. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah so, I like that. Yeah. Mother yeah. Teresa didn't start Missionaries of Charity till she was 40. You know, the best mm -hmm. work of her life was in the last half of her life. I mean, mm -hmm. the first half was certainly preparation for all of that. But when I see my gray hairs in the in the mirror, mm -hmm. I just think, oh, they're not an excuse. They're <laughs> <laughs> right. really maybe an opportunity to 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 do the better work well, ahead that's, of me. That's helpful because yeah. I mean, you could read a lot of these examples and think, I'll never, you know, yeah. I can never mm -hmm. do that. But right. I, you know, I, you know. I, from, you know, from the, the stories that I read in your work, that's not, you know, that's not the sense that I get, mm -hmm. is that, you know, well, I could never do it. Well, no, I could start something, and that seems right. to be what they, what they approach this with. Right, right, for sure. Uh, and so some of them did start when they were younger, uh, mm -hmm. like, like Lisa the cop. Uh, my youngest interviewee was in his 30s and actually started his organization when he was in college. Wow. Uh, he had, speaking of Mother Teresa, he had gone uh, and spent a couple of summers working with the missionaries of charity in, in India. Mm. Um, and That's uh, got to be a game changer yeah, for, for yeah, a teenager. Yeah. yeah. So by the end of the second summer, he thought, you know, this is really inspiring, but I think my calling is actually to try to uh, prevent people from landing in the home for right. the dying destitutes in the first place. Mm -hmm. uh, and so he started a, a medical mission in mm. India uh, when he was a sophomore in college. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, most of my interviewees were much older uh, when they started their, their great nonprofit work. Uh, so yeah, some of them, uh, at least the Purpose Prize winners, uh, well into their 50s or even 60s. Uh, my oldest interviewee was in her 80s, mm. and, um, and she had started her organization, uh, a mobile technology lab in a, a big bus. Uh, she had started that after retirement. Uh, mm. Her uh, and, and her husband decided to do that when uh, their four kids called them up and said, uh, you know, we don't want you to worry about leaving any inheritance for us. We're doing fine, so we want you to enjoy your money uh, for the rest of your life. And so they talked it over and they said, you know, well, that's really nice and all, but there's nothing we actually want to do. Uh, so let's start this nonprofit instead. That's, that's what my parents are doing. They're 93 and 88. They still make two holy hours every day, and they're using our inheritance to build churches in Africa and wells and, you know, things like oh, that. Oh, that's awesome. It's just, like, it's just great. They're like, we don't need it. You guys don't wow. need it. We're going to send it where it's needed. So oh, I love Oh, maybe that. I should interview them next. Yeah. <laughs> they sound like wonderful people. <laughs> they are. They're pretty spectacular. Well, I like this, that you do have, you, you do have resources for people at all ages. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that, you know, I think that's important because there, you know, there's a sense when you're young that like, well, I'll, when I get to a certain age, then I'll do it. And then when you get to that age, you're busy yep. <laughs> with all the things that life throws or at you. Or too tired. Or, you know. and, and then you're too tired. And it's like, yeah. well, you know, what can I do? Um, and, and, you know, this, this sort of work provides examples of people starting at 
different, different places and in different ways, using their gifts, not necessarily doing something that's completely out of their, out of their capabilities. Um, what, where, where are you going next with, with this work? Are you going to follow it up uh, with, with a different view? or? Um, yeah, glad you asked. Uh, when you gave that nice summary of, of sort of where people are, are coming from and, and what their message, uh, their takeaway message seems to be, um, that actually resonated very much with what they told me in follow-up interviews that I did uh, just specifically with some of my Christian interviewees. Uh, I am presently sort of working, one might say, on, uh, on my next book. Uh, which is with a, a subset of these same interviewees that were in the first one. Uh, so, again, specifically Christian interviewees, uh, because that was such a prominent theme that came up, and it, it was something I, I felt like I really couldn't give its due in the, the type of book that I was working on. Um, so, uh, several themes in addition to, to faith sort of sprang up in the, the interviews. Um, like one of them, interestingly, was post-traumatic growth. A lot of these people had just awful childhoods, mm -hmm. and so much so that you would almost have thought that the way to make people virtuous was to traumatize right. them. Right. Like, you're like, don't right. try that at home, kids, right? right? right. Uh, so, uh, so like that's something I'm looking at, yeah. but but also very much so their uh, their faith and how that's driven them. Uh, and so I, I did follow up interviews uh, with these folks, and my last question was, what advice would you give to people who are wanting to, yeah, to make a positive difference a in the world? Question. And almost all of them gave the same advice, right? Like, you don't have to be like me. You don't have to do something big. So find something you care about. Find mm -hmm. something you're passionate about, and just do something. Just start. Uh, and so that um, Literally for almost all of them, that, that was yeah. basically what they, they said they recommend we all do. I recall listening to an interview with somebody in this, you know, somebody who was doing something like mm -hmm. this. I don't think it was somebody from your book, but she said she, she went to Calcutta when Mother Teresa was alive and, you know, she, was, she wanted to be one of the missionaries of charity and finally Mother Teresa told her something like, go find your own slum. Yeah, you know, that's, that's, that's what we need to do. We yeah. need to, yeah. you know, not, not focus on you know, you know what, what God would think of us, you know, if we were somebody else, but what he wants us to do right now, being who we are. That, that's really important. Yeah. yeah, Benedict said on that Good Samaritan parable reflection, he said it was as though the Good Samaritan had asked and answered the question, where is my love needed now? Where mm. is my love needed right now? What practical way can I be of service to what's in front of me, just tackling what's at hand mm -hmm. rather than trying to go out and create, create some spectacular thing. I loved that. Mm -hmm. um, where is my love needed? Well, this is great. So, Heidi, uh, your book, Ethical Excellence, Catholic University of America Press, uh, we'll have that and also the link to your article in Logos in our show notes. Uh, but it's been great talking to you about ethical excellence. Has it not been depressing and it's not yeah. been overwhelming? <laughs> it's been uh, inspiring, in it, fact. Absolutely <laughs> inspiring. So thank you very much. Is there any, anything else you'd like to tell us about other projects you're working on right now? Uh, the, the book one is the main one, so uh, the thought I want to leave 
uh, everybody with is what I always leave my students with. The ethical life really is the good life. Amen. <laughs> really is the good life. Well Amen. Said. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you, Liz, for uh, joining me in this great conversation here. And we thank you, the listeners, uh, for joining us for another great episode of Deep Down Things, a partnership between Logos Journal and the Friends of St. Thomas Catholic Studies. And we hope that you'll visit our website, patreon.com backslash deep down things. Uh, please become a patron of the show. You'll get extra material uh, here from our fathers, Byron Hagen and Bryce Evans, and other great extras. And you'll be able to continue the conversation with us. Uh, till then, thank you very much, and God bless. <laughs>